Bible, please, and open it to Matthew chapter 9. We are thankful to come back to Matthew's gospel again, as we have for two and a half years now. Uh, This is a tremendous study into the life of Christ, and I really do believe that if you get a good grip on what's said and done here in the gospel of Matthew, that you will have a, a very strong foundation of the faith. And we expect that because the gospel accounts are all about Jesus' life. They tell us what Jesus came to do, And we don't just hear it from others. We hear it from the mouth of the one who lived it and taught it. We observe his life as we read through this gospel. And in our passage today, we have a really good look at the modus operandi of Jesus. I'm sure most of you probably understand that term. I hope that you do. If you've ever watched crime shows on TV, police dramas, courtroom dramas, and things like that. Sometimes they'll talk about the modus operandi of a criminal, and that's his habits. What does he do? What is the way that he normally carries out his crimes? Well, I'm taking that term today, and of course, I'm not applying it to a criminal, but we're applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is his modus operandi? And sometimes that's shortened to his M.O. What did he do? What, were his pra- what was his practice? What were his habits? And I can tell you without much explanation that his habits were the habits of a king of a great kingdom. His habits are what you would expect from someone who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just and perfectly honest. But even more than that, his, his habits were of those or of a person who, was, who, was, who loved perfectly, who was a compassionate person. And one thing that you never want to do, you, do never, you never want to confront the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God without knowing his compassion and his graciousness and his love for people. Now, God's righteousness and justice would leave us without hope unless he was also mercifully loving and gracious. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great English pastor of the Westminster Chapel in England, said this in the beginning of the last century. He said, There is no reason in man that God should save. The need is born of God's own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the ravening wolf having wandered from the fold? It has been said the great work of redemption was the outcome of a passion for the righteousness and holiness of God, that Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. I do not so read the story. God could have met every demand of his righteousness and every demand of his holiness by handing men over to the doom they had brought upon themselves. But deepest in the being of God, holding in the great energizing might both holiness and righteousness, is his love and compassion. It is out of love which inspired by the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided. Well, we notice in our passage today the love and compassion of Jesus as we observe how he went about ministering to people. Stand with me, please, once again as we read God's Word. We're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse number 35, down through verse 38. Matthew nine thirty-five. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted 
and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Bless us as we look into this today and help us to learn something about the habits of Jesus. And may we pattern our lives after his. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been with us in our Matthew study for a while, you may recognize this passage, this verse. Uh, It's a familiar one to us. You may recognize it because verse number 35 is a verse that I spoke on last week. But going back a little bit further than that, in the fourth chapter, verse number 23, Matthew said almost exactly the same words. It said, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. From the fourth chapter of Matthew to where we are now, we continually see the consistency of the ministry of Jesus. And you could say that these two passages of Scripture, in the fourth chapter and the ninth chapter, they're bookends to Jesus' ministry. And what we see in between those two passages of Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached in the history of the world. And we also see many of the miracles that Jesus did that proved that he truly was the Son of God, that he is the Messiah that had come into the world. Nicodemus recognized this about Jesus, what a teacher that he was in John chapter 3. He said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles except God be with him. So here then is the ministry of Jesus. We can observe his life, we continue reading through the gospel account, and we never find Jesus deviating from this pattern. He's always consistent. He's always ready to show his love and compassion upon people. He's always ready to teach them. It's his MO. It's his modus operandi. And since Jesus is our teacher, that should also be the pattern for our lives. Now, we notice something here as we get ready to move into chapter 10, that this is a transitional passage. These verses are transitional, and they're transitional from Jesus being the one who taught and preached and healed and doing all of the ministry of the kingdom of God alone to bringing his disciples into that work and make them effectively ministers and doing the same thing that he did. Jesus' ministry was short. He only had three years to work, to do what he did, And so we wonder, how is it possible that the ministry of Jesus Christ has survived now for 2,000 years? Well, we notice in the beginning of chapter 10, verse number 1, it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And following that is continuous instruction on how the disciples must carry on the work of Christ in reaching people for the kingdom of God. Today we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to notice some particulars about this very important work of Jesus and how we need to do the same work. Now, the first of these is persistence in the work. Matthew 4.23 is the 
right after the baptism of Christ. It's after the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And from those events and the imprisoning of John the Baptist, Jesus left Judea and he went into Galilee and he started his Galilean ministry and he focused on that ministry. He was consistent in that ministry. As it says here, he traveled around from town to town, walking through that area, crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee many times to reach as many people as possible for the kingdom. The Scripture says that he went all through Galilee. Now, Joseph, the Jewish historian, says that at that time there were about 200 towns and villages in Galilee. There were about 3 million people that were living in the area. And so that tells us that there was no time for Jesus to slow down. It says he went to all the towns and the villages. So that means that he had to get up early, he had to stay up late, and consistently, day by day, he had to keep on the move. And this is why you find him later so tired and needing rest. In the 8th chapter, we saw how that Jesus got into the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he fell asleep when a storm arose on the sea. It's not hard to understand why Jesus needed rest when there was so much work for him to do. So he's always busy. He is persistently uh, doing the work that the Father gave him to do. And that's the pattern for us. It was a pattern for his disciples. He said to them, follow me. And if they were going to follow him, they had to keep up. They had to do what he did. They had to put in the time. Their business was the kingdom of God because that's that's what Christ's business was. Their business didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was God's kingdom. And I want to show you how that that relates to you as a child of God. I know that you haven't been called into full-time ministry. You're not going to spend your days, as I do, studying the Bible, preparing sermons, and then going about the work of administering the church, uh, things that go on in the church. You have jobs to do. You have families to support. And so you have to go and you have to do that particular work. There are many things for you to do. But I would submit to you that your job is still the kingdom of God. If you are a born-again Christian, if you are a child of God, your business is still God's kingdom. And I would tell you that God has given your job as a place to facilitate the work of God in this world. And so the money that you earn is not for fine clothes, it's not for big houses, it's not for nice cars, and there's nothing wrong if you have those things, but your purpose, you need to understand, is to serve Christ. And everything that God gives you in this life is to be considered in that purpose. And that makes it hard for us to understand why Christians don't want to come to church It makes it hard to understand why there's not consistency and there's not persistence in the ministry. It makes it hard to understand why that there are God's people who have no commitment to doing God's work in this world. There is no way that we are going to reach our towns and our villages, or if you want to put it this way, our subdivisions and the environs of Roanoke Park, if God's people are not willing to do the work that God has given us to do. If we are not willing to bookend one end of our lives with the salvation that we have in Christ, and then on the other end, our going home to glory, if we're not going to take all of that time that lies in between and use it for the kingdom of God, there is no way that we're going to reach people, the people of the world. It can't be done. 
the church can't fulfill its purpose unless God's people realize that the call of salvation is a call into his service. God has left us here, put us here to work in his kingdom, and we're his servants. We belong to him. We are his slaves. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the price by which we are bought is the price of Jesus' own blood. The old rugged cross that was sung about a moment ago, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross is the price to bring us into God's kingdom. That's the price to make us God's servants. Now, I want us to notice some things uh, in verse number 35, the kinds of things that Jesus did on a daily basis with his life. And we could start with this, that he spent his time with erudition. Now, do you understand the word erudition? If you don't, this is your word for the day, so you can write it down what it means. It means learning. It means scholarship. Jesus went into the synagogues, and with great learning, he taught God's word. How did Jesus achieve that? How did he get the knowledge that he had? Well, some people will think, well, it's obvious. He's the Son of God. He came pre-programmed. He came into the world pre-programmed with all the knowledge that he needed. But I need to remind you that Jesus was also human. He was 100% man as well as 100% God. And don't ask me to explain that to you because I can't, because it never happened to anyone in all the history of the world. He was the unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. But you also need to understand that he went through a normal childhood, just like you and I grow up. There's not much said in Scripture about Jesus as a child. Very little is written from the time of his birth until the time he entered into his public ministry. But we do have this verse in Luke 2, verse number 52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. W.A. Criswell comments on that verse, and he says, Luke indicates that Jesus grew, one, intellectually, two, physically, three, spiritually, and four, socially. Thus, he grew and matured like any other person. And so, again, you might ask, well, how's that possible? He was God. I mean, doesn't he have all of that intellect and that wisdom, and, and doesn't he have the spirituality because he's God? And that's an interesting question. But we have to take it in the light of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. And there it tells us that Jesus stepped down from his throne in glory. And Jesus emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a man. And so Jesus grew up and he learned and he experienced everything that we go through. Everything that you and I go through as a human, Jesus went through. So that was necessary. Jesus had to demonstrate righteousness. His life was a life full of righteousness. He earned perfect obedience or did perfect obedience to the law and earned a righteousness that could actually be given to us. And so I can tell you that Jesus was erudite. And that's because he spent time studying the scriptures. He learned so that he could go into the synagogues and teach the people with authority. Now, also, we see that he spent his time with exposition. Last week, we talked a little bit about the synagogue system. Uh, It was customary in the synagogues that God's word would be read and the word would be explained. And that system allowed that visiting teachers could come in 
And they would sit down with the elders of the synagogue and they would read the scriptures and the visiting teacher would begin to explain those scriptures. And Jesus, because of his uncommon knowledge, had no problems getting into the synagogues and teaching the people. He was a masterful teacher and he read the word and he explained how God's word related to him. At least in that sense, the synagogues were a model for what we do in church today. The exposition of God's word is the most important part of God's church. The most important part of what we do here. Now, we come here to sing. We love good singing, and that's worship to God. We come here to pray, and that's also worship to God as we speak to him. We also have reverence when we come into this service, and that's part of our worship, understanding who God is and who we are. But the most important part of what we do here in worship is not all that we do towards God, but what God does towards us, and that's when God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. And you want to be careful that you don't go to a church that spends all of its time doing the talking. Sometimes people have to listen to what God is saying. Praying is our expression. Singing is our expression. When God's word is preached, that is when God is speaking to us. And so if you go to a church where the Bible isn't read, where the Bible isn't used, and the Bible is not explained... If you go to a church where the word of God is not primary, that it's not number one on the top of the list, then you are in the wrong church. And I don't mean that you go to church to listen to stories, and you don't go to church to get object lessons and barely hear any, if at all, a mention of the cross of Jesus Christ or a mention of salvation and redemption and blood and righteousness, a hell for those that are lost and a heaven for those that are redeemed. If you don't hear those things in the church where you go, friend, you are in the wrong church. So don't go where they're afraid or they don't care about God's word and believe that it's actually the final authority for the belief and practice of God's people. So Jesus spent his time explaining, expositing scripture. Thirdly, he spent his time with evangelism. Verse 35 says that he preached the gospel. The gospel is euangelion. That's the very same word from which we get evangelism. Jesus spent his time evangelism. He preached. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And that's a pattern for us. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, in chapter 10, he began to teach his disciples how to do evangelism. He showed them how to go out and speak to people. You know, some people believe that what I'm supposed to do here is that I am supposed to get everybody gathered in here and I'm to preach an evangelistic sermon every Sunday morning and that's so I can get people that are in the building saved. And that's good. If we have lost people that are in our congregation, we certainly want them to be saved. But as I've told you before, the church service is not primarily intended as the place of evangelism. This is a place of instruction for God's people. It's to do what I'm telling you right now, to do as Jesus did. I'm I'm here to tell you about your responsibilities, what Christian people are supposed to do, what the Word of God means for your edification. And the Bible actually calls that equipping saints to do the work of the ministry. Evangelism is done mainly on the outside. 
Now, I preach some evangelistic messages. I try to make sure that there's a call for lost sinners in the service. But the primary purpose here is to teach you to do what Jesus taught his disciples to do. And that is to go out and spread the word of the kingdom of God. Go to the towns and villages and preach the gospel. So that's the pattern for us. It was his persistence, his consistency to do that day after day. He began educating himself with the Word of God and educating others. He began to elucidate the Scriptures with exposition. And persistently, on a daily basis, he evangelized the lost. And that's our pattern for ministry. Now, we also notice in these verses the problem with the people. Verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So there is a problem with the people, and it's an ongoing problem that's still with us today. Their people are like sheep that have no shepherd. So here is the condition of the people then. They are wandering sheep. This is the problem. They are wandering sheep. Sheep with no shepherd. So the first problem that we see in that is that people are like sheep. Now you think, well, that's, you know, that's a nice reference. Sort of paints a picture in your mind of people as little lambs, sweet little innocent little lambs, and we're captivated by that picture. And often the Word of God does speak in that way. It, it, it talks about people in that way. When, when I was in elementary school, I remember... One of the things that we did was to go and visit the uh, University of Kentucky Agricultural Station. And this was a huge farm that had uh, all kinds of crops that they grew there, and they studied animal husbandry. And we went there, and we watched them shear sheep. And as a little kid, you know, that was just fascinating to me, to watch them shear those sheep. And, we, and, and kids are not afraid to go up to the sheep and pet them. They're so docile, they're so nice, and... You can pick up a lamb if you want to, and kids go to the petting, the petting zoos around, you know, and they pet the lambs, they pet the goats. And that's a great picture. And many times the Bible emphasizes that part of the people of God and how that Jesus is compassionate because those people are just like little lambs. But that's not what Matthew's trying to get across here. Jesus had compassion on them, not because they were like cuddly little sheep, but his compassion was on them because they were stupid like sheep. I mean, not in a hateful way. I mean, humans are like sheep in that they're stupid. That means we can't find our way around. We don't know how to get to God. We don't even know what's best for us. You think about that, the stupidity of people and how they ruin their lives. They ruin their lives with drugs and alcohol and venereal disease, and they destroy their families by their wicked and Rotten morality? How stupid is that for us to do that to ourselves? A sheep is a dumb animal. A sheep has no homing instincts. You take a sheep away from the flock five minutes away, and he has no idea how to get home. A sheep is dumber than a cat, folks. You know, I, I, remember, I, re- <laughs> I remember seeing a story on television once about a cat that actually found its way from one side of the country to the other. I mean, the... the, the people that owned this cat left it behind and this cat over months and months and months made its way all across across the country to find its owners now i suppose the cat wasn't smart enough to figure out they left him behind for a purpose but he went looking for him and so the, the, the cat found him that's unusual for a cat cats are pretty dumb but the bible doesn't 
call us cats and dogs. It doesn't compare us to them because at least they have a little bit of sense. It calls us sheep because sheep don't have any. They're wandering around. They have no clue where they are. And you remember the Bible does say that about us. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. So people are wandering around. They're like stupid sheep. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea how to make things right. They don't know what to do. And certainly they don't know how to get to God. They don't know how to go to heaven. For people to know that, they have to have somebody to guide them. They have to have somebody tell them what to do. So that's what Jesus saw with the people. They're wandering around like sheep, and they have no shepherd. And I also might mention this is one of the reasons that Jesus went into the synagogues to teach people. It's because they had no one to tell them the truth. They were, you know, they're also ignorant. Uh, Stupid, that's a different thing from ignorant. And uh, an ignorant person is somebody who just hasn't learned anything. But they shouldn't have been unlearned. They had the scriptures. They had people that were supposed to be teaching them. For hundreds of years, they have the word of God. They had the laws of Moses. They have all these examples of Israel. They have the prophets that they could read, and and, and they were supposed to have been told those things. But Jesus went into the synagogues to teach because what they were hearing there, all the things that they heard before did not enlighten them to the true God. They, They supposed that they were worshiping the true God, but they weren't. There weren't any shepherds to give them the truth. And this is why Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and why he explained the law as Moses gave it. They went to the synagogues for their entire lives and they learned nothing at all about the truth. So you have a problem with the people. The condition of the people is they are like sheep and they have no shepherd. And that leads me to this observation about their problem, which is the cause of their plight. The cause of their plight is they are, again, without shepherds. Now, let's notice that. He says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto the disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Did you know that by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, there was hardly anyone in the entire nation of Israel that knew the one true God? Now, they claimed to worship him, but they didn't really know him. Before Jesus was born, there was a godly priest by the name of Zacharias who was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the Scripture says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They were true believers. And so God chose them to be the parents of John the Baptist. And then when Jesus was born, his parents took him into the temple And when he came into the temple, there was a man by the name of Simeon there. And Simeon saw Jesus, and Jesus had come to the temple for circumcision. And this man, Simeon, took Jesus up in his arms, and he blessed him, and he said, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. But those people were far and few between. Few and far between, I should say. The synagogues were just filled with people that were rogues people that were hypocrites. They supposed that they were the shepherds of the people, but they were actually hirelings. They cared nothing at all for the sheep. All they cared about was themselves, and all they cared about was enriching themselves, and they had perverted God's word for their own benefit. And doesn't that sound kind of familiar? Turn on the television today, and the tube is filled with the same types of preachers. 
And if you don't have a tube, look on your LCD or LED, whatever you got, and you'll see their light, their faces just light up with this. All oh, their pleas for money. Better still, I tell you, don't watch them and don't pay attention to them because they are all just like the scribes and the Pharisees. They have no interest but to enrich themselves. So that's a problem. It's pervasive throughout the churches of the country. And you try to find somebody who preaches from the Bible, try to find a church that is not a social gathering and a pop music concert, Trying to find a church where somebody is using the Bible, that uh, someone is expositing the Scriptures, a preacher who tells it cover to cover from God's Word, of God's Word, you're going to have a hard time finding that. And when you go looking for it, make sure you've got a full tank of gas and plenty of money to buy some more. Because when you go looking, you're going to use up a lot of tanks finding a preacher who did what Jesus did, who spent his time telling people what the Word of God says and preaching the very same gospel message. You're going to find a hard time, have a hard time finding somebody like the Apostle Peter. You'll have a hard time finding somebody like Paul who is uncompromising, unyielding, with fortitude of the Spirit of God. You're going to have a hard time finding that preacher. What you will find is plenty of preachers with their Hawaiian shirts and their faded jeans sitting on their stools and trying to be relevant and meeting all the felt needs of all the people. And so they have a psychological gospel that they preach where we're telling you about your self-esteem. Make sure that you realize all of your potential. Let's make a better you. The only thing they can't do is they can't make you like Jesus Christ. They don't have a message that makes you like Christ. So those kinds are everywhere. There are few real shepherds. And Jesus saw the problem. He says the people are scattered like sheep, and the shepherds are nothing but a useless pile of sheep dung. And I guess that's the low point of the sermon today. Jesus didn't have any, bunt, any, any, any use for that bunch. I don't have any use for them either. And he said, well, that's not Christian charity. That's not what preachers ought to be saying. But maybe you don't see people dying and going to hell. It's a serious problem. It is a serious matter. The harvest is plenteous, Jesus says. There are lots of people that are on their way to hell. The field is full of them, and there are few people that will work in the harvest. Now, let's notice then, thirdly, what Jesus says needs to be done about this. Here's another part of the modus operandi of Jesus. What did he say and what did he do? Well, thirdly, we see the prayer for help. Verse 35, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. Jesus was a man of prayer. Oh, he was God for sure, but he's also man. And you often find him on his knees, hours on his knees, praying to God. And so he went and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And sometimes he prayed so long that the disciples fell asleep waiting on him. Jesus is praying. He labors in supplication and the disciples are lazy in sleep. But this is what Jesus says to do about it. You need to pray about it. Get busy praying about it, that God will send somebody into the harvest. And that is what a lot of Christians do. And we thank God for that. They pray that God will send somebody into the harvest. Pray that somebody will go. Pray that somebody will reach them with the gospel of Christ. And so Jesus told them to pray about it. Get busy talking to God about it. Notice what he says to do. I I, I think... uh, The words aren't exactly here in plain English, but it's apparent that he's telling them to wait on God because his first instruction is not rush out there, get your tracks, get your door hangers, get all of your materials and go out there and just go after it. He didn't say that. 
He says, pray. Why do you need to pray about it? Well, it's a good question. I want to answer it for you. You need to pray because God's the only one who could ever move a sinner's heart. You know, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago in our forum class. Somebody said it a long time before me. But most people believe that salvation is just a very simple matter of a person's free will. You just give them the gospel and they'll make a decision or they won't make a decision. They'll decide for God or they'll decide against God. Well, let me ask you something. If you believe that that's actually true, why do you pray for them? What are you praying for God to do? I mean, if salvation is simply a matter of just a decision that somebody makes, then why do you pray for them? You know, all the decisional regeneration people become staunch doctrines of grace people when they go down to their knees. And you know why? Because they're praying that God will influence that lost person, that God will change their will, will change their heart, which is naturally against God. And so you pray, God, open their hearts, cause them to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing thing because that's what I've been preaching from day number one when I stepped in the pulpit. Before any person is ever going to be saved, God has to change the heart. God has to cause them to understand the gospel. That's why we pray about it. That's why we go to God and ask him about it. Now, I preach that from the pulpit, and there's some people that despise that doctrine. And so they get on their knees and they pray about it, and it's okay. But when I preach it, it's not the truth. That, I don't understand that. God says, pray about it. Jesus says, pray about it. Pray that God Almighty will move people. And what does he do? He moves people to the work, and he moves people to salvation. God is the only one who can do that. So you're not going to spend all of your energy and your power getting people saved. It's not going to be done with a suave, soul-winning technique and because you bought somebody's book who has a surefire method of getting decisions. Decisions are easy. Turning people from lost sinners on their way to hell to someone who really knows and trusts in Jehovah God is a entirely different matter. That takes God working in their heart. Only God can do this. So the answer to that question is you're not going to change anybody. Only God does it. So you help, you pray, you pray for help. Pray that the Holy Spirit will come and work on the sinner's heart. And when they hear the gospel, they will be led to salvation because you can't do anything. God does it all. So you wait on God, but then what happens next? The next part is, work on me. Wait on God and work on me. So when you start praying, something is going to happen, something that you might not expect to happen, and sometimes what you don't bargain for. Jesus said, pray for laborers. We notice he doesn't say pray for the lost. Most people start praying for the lost. They come to me and they say, you know, I've been praying that uh, my uncle, my aunt will get saved. I'm praying that somebody will go to them and give them the gospel and they'll be saved. Would you put them on the prayer page and get people praying for them? And there's nothing wrong with that. We have a prayer page on Wednesday night that's filled with people that have salvation needs, friends and family, coworkers, whatever. And, And they have salvation needs and we're praying for them. But we notice that not a lot of them get saved. Now, there are a few reports that came back, and they say, well, you know, that person we've been praying for, that that friend of mine, guess what? They did get saved. But then somebody will say, well, what's the problem with all those others that we've been praying for? What's their problem? And they'll say, well, I guess it's just not God's will for them to be saved. And God's election and predestination, God's not going to save them. Don't ever let me hear you say that. 
If that's what you think, you need to start praying a little bit differently. Start praying, God, send somebody to my friend. God, please save that person. And you keep praying about that. And pray that God will open up their hearts to the gospel. And so I often tell you on Wednesday nights, let's pray that God will send them somebody with the gospel. And you know why I keep telling you that? Because I do know this, that if you keep praying that prayer over and over and over again, if you keep praying God send somebody to them with the gospel, finally you're going to get the sense, God, I think that somebody's me. I think I must be the one that you want to go take the gospel to them. God, then empower me with your word. God, show me what to say. Teach me how to approach them. Give me the right words. And that's when you start saying, here am I, send me. And you know what happens then? You have hit on Jesus' modus operandi. How did he do it? He told the disciples to start praying, and then he turns right around and teaches them how to get involved in evangelizing the lost. What did Jesus say? Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. You know when he said that? He didn't have anybody in mind but them. I mean, that was his intention right then. They're the laborers that he's going to send. So they get involved in prayer. They wait on God. And finally, they realize God's working on me. God wants me to go. And if you keep praying the prayer, God will send you. You see the way that Jesus works? He's persistent about his work that the Father gave him to do. He always did the Father's will. He always learned what he needed to know. He grew up studying the Word. He learned the power of the Spirit that was in him, and he began to teach that Word to others. And he taught them to do what he did. He preached the gospel. He evangelized. He took people and told them, Repent of your sins. Trust in me. I'm the only way that you're going to get to heaven. Stop trying to get there on your own. Trust him. And then he says, Get involved. He got them praying. And when their prayers were earnest, truly earnest, that somebody would go out and speak the gospel to others, the somebody turned out to be them, the ones that were praying. Folks, I hope you see this. The only way to do God's work is to do it God's way. This is the modus operandi of Jesus. And I suggest that we get busy doing what he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the message that we find here. If we could just follow what Jesus did, if we just made it a part of our everyday lives to do what Jesus did, what a difference that it would make in the world around us, what a difference it would make here in Roner Park. We would see the gospel of Christ go out to all the areas of our towns and villages, our subdivisions, our environs, and finally into the entire world. This is how they did it in the first century. It's the burden that they had, the compassion they had for people that were lost. Lord, give us that same feeling, that same desire to give your gospel to others. Work in our hearts today, Lord. I pray that you impress somebody with the gospel today and you would impress Christians to give that gospel to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.